you're not already there, turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 26. We'll be looking there. And we're going to be continuing through our series, The Cross and the Resurrection, in this Lenten season, if you will, the time leading up to uh, Good Friday and Easter. We want to focus specifically and begin to marinate, to think, to meditate upon the significance of the cross uh, and then the, the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ. So uh, today we'll be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Andrew, would you bring me the clicker, please? I'm sorry. Uh, I think it's on that podium. There's a lot of moving parts this morning, and um, I'm very thankful for my uh, sidekick here, Andrew, to uh, be able to help me because uh, a lot of movement. So what I want to do is uh, today, as we look at Romans chapter 3, uh, I want to be able to ask you the question this morning, how do we know what God is like? How do we know what God is like? And sometimes uh, people will say, God is, I know what God is like because of this um, emotional experience that I get. Maybe it's just simply the shivers that you get down your spine where you know that God must be involved in this. Or as you grow in your knowledge, uh, there's intellectual knowledge that you have and you know that this is bringing me closer to the divine God. Or maybe it's a secret understanding that you have that separates you from somebody else. Maybe it's uh, simply a voice or a vision or a random thought or even a Bible verse that you have uh, popped into your head that you realize, I know God because of these things. Well, in theology, in Christian theology, there are two ways that we come to understand who God is. Uh, two types of revelation that we have from God. There's natural revelation and there's special revelation. Natural revelation is simply a general understanding that is given to a general audience. And um, in the context of where we are, the book we're this morning, Romans chapter 3, back in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, you see this general revelation that Paul teaches about. And he says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived how or how long ever since the creation of the world, how in the things that have been made, so all are without excuse. You see, God uses natural revelation to communicate his existence, his power, his magic, majesty, his creativity, his glory. When we walk to the beach, when, the, in, when it's open, of course, when we see a great mountain, when we gaze up on a starry night and we see a, a beautiful galaxy and a shooting star, when we see the planets, when we see a brilliant moon, we see God is the maker of these things and he is powerful, he is glorious, and he's extravagant in his creativity. God uses natural revelation and all of creation, 
whether it be sunrise, every sunrise and every sunset, whether it be the tiniest molecule to the greatest Alpha Centauri, the greatest star, every animal, every fish, every bird and every plant, every song and every story sing its maker's praise. Even the psalmist who was captured by the beauty of the glory of general revelation said this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. All things bright and beautiful, the English hymn says, all things bright and beautiful, all creations, creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. See, the problem, though, with general revelation, it is not sufficient. It's uh, uh, sufficient to be able to tell us that there is a God and able to say uh, things about this God, powerful and creative and glorious. But as the Westminster Confession says this, it's not sufficient to give a knowledge of God or of his will or what's necessary unto salvation. So in other words, We know there's a glorious and powerful God in creation, but we don't know how to approach this God, and we really don't understand what this God requires of us. So that's why we need the second type of special revelation. Um, Special revelation is God choosing to reveal himself to finite people. The infinite God choosing to reveal himself to us. Because the the reality is, if God never chooses to reveal himself, we can never know him. But as he has revealed himself, and we have that revelation in the word of God, and as we read through that revelation, we learn more and more about this God, the things that he desires, the things that he loves, the things that grieve God, the things that righteously make him righteously angry. And as we see him in his laws and commandments and his prophets and his providence, his working in creation, we see things that our God is free from corruption and injustice. Our God is just in all his works. Our God is faithful to his promises, his uh, chesed, his covenant faithfulness. The righteousness of God has been revealed to creation in certain times and certain ways. Yet the more we learn about the righteousness of God, we learn something else. We learn the fact that we have a problem. And that problem is that God is righteous and we are unrighteous. So I want to address what God has done and how we see the heart of the God, the greatest revelation of who God is and what he has done at the cross. And my big idea for you today that we learn the heart of God is this, the justice of the cross ensures the blessings of God's favor. 
Let me read it again. The justice of the cross ensures the blessing of God's favor. And how we're going to do that today as we walk through this text is, one, we see the depth of our need. The depth of our need. And then we see the length of God's grace. The length of God's grace. And finally, we see the breadth of God's justice, the breadth of God's justice. I've been practicing all morning that word, breadth, and I still, it's just a word I can't say. But I'll muddle through this, and you see it behind me. The depth of God's, of our need, the length of God's grace, and the breadth of God's justice. Uh, as we begin, notice the depth of our need in verses 21 through 23. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness, the righteous God of the universe has made a way for unrighteous sinners to be brought back into a right relationship with him. And this is a game changer. If you were this morning to have read through Romans 1 and Romans 2, uh, and the beginning of Romans 3, these are heavy chapters. You see this glory of this righteous God, but you see the um, weight of sin, how we are so corrupted by sin. But Paul is about to announce with these two simple words, but now, but now, but being a conjunction, all those things before are true, but something, this is a game changer, something is, is coming. God is taking the initiative to bring sinners back into a right standing before God. God is taking the initiative to bring sinners, unrighteous people, back into a right relationship that he's doing. But notice what Paul says. It's being done apart from the law. Up to this point in your Bible, you have probably three quarters of the Bible of narrative and laws and prophets and poetry and some, at times, confusing things. But in, but each story, as you read from every genealogy to every poem to every prophet to every priest and every king, these stories are the record of God, how, of how God is revealing himself to us. And all of it, all of the Old Testament is valuable because the law and the prophets reveal the righteousness of God. When we read of these things, we are learning that we have a God who is righteous. But not only does the law and the prophet reflect this righteous God in his character and his nature, but we also have, the, notice the end of verse, I believe is verse 21, the law bears witnesses or foreshadows something more that's coming, something more that's coming, that this is a new chapter that in God's saving plan of redemption that's coming. And these are foreshadowed. Um, a taste is given that there is something more and it's coming. And this old covenant, I'm sorry, this new covenant is what the old covenant anticipates. You see this righteousness of God, this righteous plan of God that rescues all 
all types of people. That is a result of grace and it is to be received by faith. Notice um, how in verse 22, this righteousness, this righteous plan of God, who is it for? Is it just for righteous people? Is it just for churchy people? Is it just for moral people? Is it just for people who give lots of money or come to church on Sundays or watch the live stream or check that box or they don't cuss and they don't chew and they don't go with girls who who do? Who is this righteous plan of God for? Verse 22 The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. Why? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This call of the gospel, that the gospel is calling all men and women to follow, is a call to trust the person and work of Jesus Christ, not their ethnicities, not their nationalities, not their governments, not their abilities, not their education, not their place in society. It's not to trust in those things. Why? Because all sorts of people, all people in all place, what? In verse 23 that we teach our children, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, all types of people have fall short of glory of God. Every single man and woman in every ethnicity, in every place of their society, in every nation has fall short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions. There are no distinctions. All have fall short of the glory of God. And ultimately, this means that all people in all places, in all societies, in all nations have lived without reference to God um, in this world. Now, we see the seriousness of this problem that we have And if you were to flip back just a few verses in chapter 3 to verse 10, these are sobering words. Let me read them to you. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No one is righteous. Not even one. Now these, as we read these texts in Romans 3.10, these uh, can echo through our minds and they're sobering words. And to many uh, 21st century hearers, these words are frankly quite offensive because the Bible is telling us that we are sinners. And I don't like to be told that I'm a sinner. I don't like to be told that I'm not a nice guy. But the reality is scripture uh, picks his mirror up and shows every single one of us the righteousness of God. And compared to the righteousness of God, we are filthy rags. Even the best of us, even the best of us is tainted by sin and rebellion and idolatry. See, the problem with our hearts is not simply that we do bad things. 
The problem is that we are idolaters and we serve and we consider ourselves first and not God. Our fundamental problem is that we de-God God. If we act like we're the center of the universe, not God, and this is the essence of sin, we say it's all about me. And when we consider ourselves first, without the saving power of the Spirit, when we only consider ourselves, we become the center of the world and we don't bring God into references that. And if there is no God, as the great uh, Tolstoy, I believe it was, said, if there is no God, we can do what, as we please. And if all of us have ourselves as the center of our universe, this is why there is sin and pain and destruction in the world because we're ignoring the one true glorious God and we're doing as we please and we're destroying ourselves and our relationships and our worlds. The New City Catechism defines, uh, really does well at defining what sin is. And it says, uh, question 16, what is sin? And sin is rejecting and ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling him against him by living a life without reference to him, doing what we want. There, if there's a God out there, I'm not taking the time to figure it out not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. And this is the reality of sin, is that we are living without reference of God and his glory. We were created to be as image bearers of God, to be brought into union with the love and glory that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were created for that, to be brought into that fellowship. But rather than living for, to love this triune God, we have turned away and we have loved ourselves and doing that we have wrought pain and destruction and death and decay upon ourselves and our worlds. Brothers and sisters, we at uniquely at this moment are bearing the consequences of living in a fallen world. And scripture tells us unless God does something, we will be hopelessly lost for eternity. But here's the good news. That's the bad news of the gospel. And you can't have the good news without the bad news. You have to understand the holiness of God. And when you understand the holy righteousness of God, you understand our unrighteousness. And at that point where you're down in the mire and, 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 uh, and you realize your hopelessness and your helplessness, it is only then that you can turn to the good news of who God is and what he has done to bring us back into a right relationship with him. And this is why the good news is such good news. God has indeed done something. He has not left us in our sin and our rebellion, but while we were yet sinners, God the Father sent and enabled the, or began this rescue plan where his son would come to rescue these rebels and win them back to be a part of his family, to be sons and daughters 
And this gospel applies to man and woman, Jew and Gentile, black and white and Asian and and Middle Eastern and Latino. It's for Westerners and Easterners. It's for rich and it's for poor. It's for Northerners and it's for Southerners. Jesus Christ has been sent to save all, all who believe in Jesus Christ and save them from the hopelessness and the helplessness of their sin. And this is where we see, despite the depth of our problem, we see the justice of the cross that ensures the blessing of God's favor. The justice of the cross ensures the blessing of God's favor. Now, uh, we see the depth of our problem or depth of our need, and we also see the length that God's grace came to save us from our sin. Notice verse 24. And are justified, all are justified by how? His grace as a gift. And through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forth as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Sometimes when you read through scripture, we often find, we come across large theological words that maybe that just don't roll off the tongue like they normally would. And this verse, verse 24, has three whoppers. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. And I want to define them briefly for you and then break them down a little bit. Uh, the first one is justification. That simply means being brought back into a right standing before God, being declared righteous. So um, to be brought back into a right relationship, uh, Anna is a rebel, a sinner, she's unrighteous, but if she is justified, she's brought back into a right relationship with God and she is justified and she has that right standing again with God. There is peace between her and God. See, that's what justification means. The second thing is redemption. Redemption is using the metaphor and the reality of the first century of slavery, but it's paying the price to release a person from their slavery. Paying the price to release a person, to win them back, to buy them back from their slavery. So justification, redemption, and propitiation rolls off your tongue, but it is a grand and glorious word. It's a sacrificial act by which someone is brought back into favor. It's a sacrificial act by which someone is brought back into favor. So each, what the the Lord does in this tapestry of grace that he is working, he is using justification and redemption and propitiation, and he's weaving these things together in this breathtaking, glorious tapestry that we call grace. And this tapestry is a tapestry that we will forever, for all eternity, magnify God for his amazing grace because it saved us from the hopelessness and the helplessness of our sin. But how did he do that? 
Well, let's look at justification. Justification really is, in essence, a forward-looking reality. And it anticipates the day when all of creation will stand before the sovereign God, maker of heaven and earth, as we sung from the Apostles' Creed today. We will stand before our maker and give an account. And even in verse uh, chapter 2, if you flip back maybe a page or two to the left... Romans chapter 2, verse 5, talking about how Jew and Gentile must uh, uh, face that day that is coming, that reckoning, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Brothers and sisters, friends of Ocean Park, those who are listening online, when that final day of judgment arrives, there is no one on their own merit, on their own ability, on their own resume, if you will, will be able to stand before the righteous God of the universe. That's what scripture says. Those aren't what my words. That's what scripture says. But the good news of the gospel that um, is proclaimed in scripture is that justification being brought into a right relationship with God is able um, and will not be based on our ability, our righteousness, but justification is what? By grace, by grace. Grace simply means unearned favor. And that grace, as scripture says, is everyone who is united to Christ by faith is been given God's grace and brought and being justified before God. So when God looks at us, he no longer sees our unrighteous sin. He sees Jesus's righteousness because when he looked at the cross, he didn't see a righteous savior dying. He saw this, our sin and our sin was paid in full. Ihard Marshall, the great theologian, puts it this way. To be justified is being put into a right relationship with God in which the sins that a person has committed are no longer counted against them and consequently they can enter into a relationship with God characterized by what? Peace. All who are in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new create, creature. Uh, therefore, all, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he has peace with God, not wrath. We, brothers and sisters, don't get what we deserve. We don't get punishment. We don't get separation. We don't get judgment. We receive God's grace. We receive honor. We receive a place to belong. We belong. We can call the almighty God of the universe Father. And we receive blessing. And if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ, you have been justified, brought into, a, in, into favor, a right relationship by grace. But I want to tell you, sometimes we hear of grace and we think, well, that's easy. Grace, though it is never earned, grace is never cheap. 
Notice verse 24, the end of verse 24. How have we we've been justified by grace, but the means of that justification is what? Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. We get to our second word, justification brought back uh, into a right relationship by grace. And redemption is back in the first century, they did not have bankruptcy laws. So if you were a farmer, if you had a, a, a business, if you had a debt or anything like this, that the only way that you could pay off the debt that you have amassed was sell yourself and your family into slavery uh, often for the rest of your life. But if you had a family member who had the financial resources, they could come to the person that you had uh, enslaved yourself to, uh, sold yourself in to pay your debt. What they could do is pay that debt for you, um, and then that would release you out of your slavery, and that would give you new freedom and liberty. And so what Paul does is he adopts this uh, redemption language to illustrate that justification uh, of those who belong to Jesus is not, uh, though it's not earned by that person, that people that are in bondage to the slavery of sin, though it is unearned by them, it is not without cost and it is not without price to be able to free us from the power and from the penalty of sin. Notice what the cost of this justification by, by grace was. Verse 25, whom God put forward as the propitiation um, by his blood. Favor with God was not bought by money or by merit. It was bought by Christ's sacrifice. That rebellion in our heart, that sin that manifests it in all types of sins has set us in direct opposition to God. Every sin that we have committed from misdemeanor to murder is first and foremost an affront to the almighty God of the universe. And we have, because we have taken God's very good world and we have trampled on it and we have corrupted it and we have uh, um, and uh, really caused great harm and havoc to God's very good and beautiful creation. But we have, and, but most of all, we have spit in the face of a sovereign God by committing cosmic treason against Him. And therefore, God, first and foremost, has been personally offended and He stands against us in wrath. So at God, when he sees all of creation that has fallen short of the glory of God, we have a God who is wrathful because we have taken his beautiful world, his almighty uh, name, his glory, his majesty in creation, and we have committed cosmic treason and we deserve the wrath of God. That's the bad news, but that's the reality. But then, that's not the rest of, here's the rest of the story in the words of Paul Harvey. What does God do? That God who is righteously angry with us also stands above us with love. That verse, John 3, 16, for God so what? Love the world. This God who is wrathful towards sinners at the same time loves sinners. So God both at the same time is wrathful against us and, lo- and loving toward us. So what does God do? He put forth his son. 
Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice that will redeem us from the slavery of our sin and to bring us back into a favorable relationship with him. This is absolutely incredible. God doesn't simply say, no big deal. Like when our kids were little, Ann and Andrew would fight. I know it's unheard of, but they would fight and bicker. And then when we would make them uh, make up, they would say, oh, that's okay. And what Denise and I did say, no, it's not okay what you did. You sinned against each other. The answer to that when somebody says, I am sorry, please forgive me, is I forgive you. I will no longer hold this against you. And this is what we have. We have a God who we have first and foremost offended, who stands in wrath against us now because of his love, is sending a means to bring us back into a right relationship at the cost of his son. This is the length that God's grace has gone to be able to bring us back into a right relationship, to be able to say, I forgive you. He sends us his son. This is absolutely incredible. If this doesn't make you want to sing, I don't know what it will, what will. But when we see these incredible blessings of the cross, it's the, ble- the justice of the cross that ensures the blessing of God's favor. There is no length that God will not go to justify us by his grace. Oh, glory be to God alone. The depth of our need was great. Our sins were great. God's mercy and grace is greater. Our sins, they are many. What? His mercy is more, absolutely. And now we see, as we close this, the breadth of God's justice. The breadth of God's justice. I remember a few years back, probably 10 or so, um, in central Florida, there was a little girl, big brown-eyed girl, um, three, four, maybe years old, who was ruthlessly murdered, and her little body was cast on the uh, in in amidst the side of the road like a piece of garbage littered from a car. And as all of this evidence came out, it really, in most of our minds, there was beyond a shadow of doubt that the person who had committed such an atrocity was actually her mother. But what this mother was able to do is she got a superstar lawyer and who wooed the jury and the mother got off on a technicality. And I remember the first time I heard that this woman, this uh, got off, I was enraged. How could the guilty, how could somebody who does that to her child get off? How could justice be so perverted? How could the guilty not be punished? Honestly, though, in reality, as we read through the book of Romans, we can think when sinful idolaters who have offended a holy God walk away scot-free and from eternal judgment, how is this not the same as this mother getting off with murder, literally? And this is where we see the justice of God's mercy, that is the cross, is not only the demonstration of the love of God, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that um, while we were at sinners, Christ loved us, and what did he do? He died for us. So when we look at the cross, we see the love of God. But when we look at the, the, the cross, we also see the justice of God's wrath on the cross. 
The cross is not only a demonstration of God's love, it is the demonstration of God's justice. Notice verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one, of the sinner who has faith in Jesus. You see, like my children, God did not say, I forgive you, no big deal, like a grandparent who has uh, gone soft throughout the years, pats their grandchild on the head and says, oh, no big deal, don't worry about it. That, for God to do such a thing, would be a travesty of justice for sinning against an infinite, almighty, glorious God. God said, I forgive you, treacherous, treasonous, unrighteous sinner, I forgive you and I will do this. Rather than pouring out my righteous wrath on God, I will pour it out on Jesus instead. And there God is just. He has not committed a travesty of justice, but he also forgives and justifies um, sinners who have sinned against the righteous God. D.A. Carson put it this way. He says, do you want to see the greatest evidence of the love of God? Go to the cross. Do you want to see the greatest evidence of the justice of God? Go to the cross. It is at the cross where the wrath and the mercy collide, where they meet. Holiness and peace kiss one another. The The climax of redemptive history is the cross. And this is what makes the cross so glorious and makes uh, the blessings of God so sweet is because the wrath of God was poured out. The cross is not just a symbol of God's redeeming love. It is a symbol of his perfect justice. God takes sin so seriously that he punished Jesus for every sin that was committed from the day that Adam and Eve ate that fruit to the day that sin is finally thrown into the lake of fire and no more. The father did not sweep sin under the rug, but he hates in his wrath sin so much and he loves unrighteous sinners so much that he came to redeem them, to bring them in right relationship, that the full tidal wave of his divine wrath swept over Christ on the cross that day. That's why in a few moments we will sing in Christ alone who took on flesh. Fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, this plan, righteous God uh, accomplishing his righteous plan, revealed from heaven apart from the law, but foretold in conjunction with the law, scorned by the ones he came to save. And this is where the wrath and justice and love of God collide. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied that unrighteous people were brought into right, favorable relationship with a righteous God. Why? For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Ocean Park, when the father put forth his son to be punished, he was demanding 
and he was demonstrating his justice. He not only paid the redemption price for our freedom, but he removed any shadow of a doubt that God was not just. Because you see, if God was not just, and this was a smoke-filled room or a um, unrighteous judge, an unjust judge, somebody could come back and question the validity of our salvation, the, deli- the validity of the liberty that we have from sin. But because the wrath of God was poured out in Christ, no one can appeal our um, exoneration for retrial. Nobody can uh, prove that the just, the, the judge was unjust. No one can bring forth more evidence to convict you. Why? Because no one can accuse God of injustice because Jesus paid it all. Every sin, not most of his sin, every sin on him was laid. Here in the uh, cross of Christ I stand. One of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther is this. Because we, we live in this reality, we await the salvation that is to come. We have been justified by faith alone until that day when we stand before our maker. But in the meantime, Satan whispers. And he says, if God only knew, if God only knew what you were really like, if he only knew what you had done that nobody else does, you'd be there. You'd be in that prison again. You deserve that. You're an unrighteous, lousy traitor. And Luther struggled with that. And when he said, when the devil throws your sin in his face, declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit I do deserve death in hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Brothers and sisters, friends, uh, those uh, joining us online, The justice of the cross ensures that the death of Jesus will never be called futile or invalid. The the justice of the cross ensures that your freedom can never be revoked. Ensures the justice of the cross ensures that your heavenly father can never be called corrupt. No one can ever question the God who looks at you with loving favor because of Jesus' propitiation for his propitious sacrifice that paid every single debt, that drunk the dregs of the cup of the wrath of God that was laid on you when he declared it is finished and call it unjust or invalid because Jesus paid it all. And by doing that, by the breadth and the totality and the fullness and the completeness of the justice of God has ensured every blessing that we have in God. Brothers and sisters, as we celebrate this morning the justice of the cross, we love the blessings of God's favor. 
Why? Because we know the depth of our need, of our sin, of our in, uh, unrighteousness. We know the length that God's grace went to save us from our sin, and we have confidence in the breadth of God's justice. So when I asked you earlier, how do we know what God is like? We can look at the beach, and we can look at the stars, and we can read through the Bible. But if you really want to know what the heart of God is like, look at the cross. Look at this loving God who redeemed us from the shackles of sin, who initiated this righteous plan of salvation while we were yet sinners, before we even realized it, before we knew the despair, the hopelessness, and the helplessness of our situation. That we have a just God who satisfied the full extent of the law to secure us our favorable standing before him. But there is a qualifier. This justification, this redemption, this propitiation is not a universal application. There is a qualifier. Notice verse 22. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 24. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And verse 26 of the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith is trusting the promises of God when Jesus died. Faith is saying Jesus took the full punishment of my sin that I would have every right and full, full relationship with God the Father as son and daughter, heir, of the uh, God of the universe. That the promises of God, faith is believing and trusting alone the fact that Jesus paid the full redemption price for my sin. Faith is saying God so loved me that he sent Jesus to save me when I was hopeless and a helpless. And faith says because of these promises, I trust Jesus. I put all the chips in the table on Jesus. I don't cling to my claims, my resume, my morality, my education, my church attendance, my membership. I don't claim those things before God because those are worthless, I realize. The only way that I can be brought to be justified, be brought into a right relationship with God is by believing who Jesus is and what he has done and saying, I believe he died for me and because of that, I will live for him. You might not know Jesus this morning as you're joining in and you've never thought about coming to church but you've happened to stumble across this live feed. You don't really know much much about Jesus except save maybe for a cuss word. Christ came to redeem you from the hopelessness and helplessness of sin. When all the foundations and the pillars of this world, medically, financially, government, all our understandings, all our politicians that we put our trust in, when they don't have answers, turn to Jesus, our God who is in heaven. Lift your eyes to the hills for our hope and our strength comes from him who sent Jesus 
fully God, fully man, who loved the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and loved his neighbor as himself, who laid himself down to take the full punishment of your sin and gives you his righteousness so you can stand before God. No matter what happens in these next few days, weeks, and years, you know that your greatest need of peace with God has been secured and nobody can question it. Repent of your self-love and your independence and your self-righteousness and believe and trust the promises of God and follow Jesus with your life all of your days giving glory to the one who saved you.